and welcome to the 26th episode of Catch Up on Kids Mental Health. I'm Janet Morrison. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Blake Pearson, who's a family physician and internationally recognized leader in the field of cannabinoid-based medicine. Dr. Pearson has educated over a thousand fellow practitioners around the world and treated patients from across Canada with a range of conditions, including chronic pain, insomnia, epilepsy, cancer, traumatic brain injury, and autism spectrum disorders that have not responded to other therapies. Dr. Pearson was the primary care lead for the Erie St. Clair Mental Health, Addictions, and Opioid Reduction Strategy. Welcome, Dr. Pearson. Thank you. It's nice to have you, and I, I think this is going to be a very interesting topic for, for me and also for our for our listeners, because I think, for me, it's not something that I know a great deal about. Yeah, well, I, I'm excited to, to share some, some information and, and hopefully provide some education. Great, great. Uh, I'd like to start by asking you how you came to cannabinoid-based medicine, and in particular, how did you come to use it with children? So... For me, I started out as a family physician, and uh, being where I'm located, we had a lot of uh, actually a senior population. So I started out using CBD and THC in those patients primarily to manage pain. And so just a few of my own patients. And once I found that it was fairly effective and also able to reduce polypharmacy in seniors, I really oh, kind oh, of. Whoa, 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 whoa. What is that? Ah, good question. So, <laughs> yes. Reduce the number of medications people are on. Okay. Yeah. So for, for seniors, that's a that's a big issue because the number of drugs certainly correlates to more adverse drug reactions. The more you're on, you're more likely to have an adverse reaction. So that's why I'm keen on cannabinoids in seniors because it's multimodal in that, meaning you can treat pain, but oftentimes these pain patients have trouble sleeping. You can also treat sleep with that. When you reduce pain and improve sleep, oftentimes mood improves, so it's not uncommon to then come off of an SSRI or an antidepressant. So it's it's really not uncommon to reduce by three or four medications, which is really important in that in that senior population. Because it causes so much toxicity. Yeah, yeah. Just just the more meds you're on, again, the more risk you are for those adverse reactions. So it's always a win if we can reduce. Uh, certain medications. So that's where we started, or that's where I started. That was my practice. Saw good results for pain and sleep. Educated myself. A big issue cannabinoid medicine is we don't learn about the endocannabinoid system in medical school. So our pharmacy school or nursing school. So I had to to do my own education on the physiology. And that's another barrier or why still a lot of physicians these days aren't aren't comfortable with it because they don't have that knowledge base. So your question though around how we got to using it in kids with, with autism who have failed, maybe some traditional medications, is I actually treat uh, dementia residents as well. That's where I started in, in nursing homes was using CBD and THC to reduce the behaviors of dementia, the agitation, the calling out, trouble sleeping. And the cannabinoids are effective, but also we are able to reduce antipsychotics. So those are an example of a harmful medication that it's that we're really moving away from in that space. So roundabout way of getting to our, our discussion on autism, but it was seeing the, the improvement in some of these behaviors, the agitation, that's when 
the thought came to to work with the children with autism. There's been research done in Israel to support that work. There's certainly practitioners out there like Bob Goldstein doing a lot of work in this area. So once I saw that, had the science to back, we started to to treat kids with usually with CBD, and that's how we we got started. So I've been educating myself on the topic and there was some new research coming out of Israel that was supportive of, of using cannabinoids in treatment of autism spectrum disorder. Still, still early days as far as the research goes, but there are emerging randomized control trials now that are being done. And there's some, some trailblazers in the field, like Dr. Bonnie Goldstein has been working with, with tr- children with autism spectrum disorders and using CBD um, for some time now. So uh, my own education following some of the leaders in the field and my own comfort level led me to starting to treat um, these kiddos with autism. And there is some history of use with children and adults with epilepsy. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so that's, that's where it really starts for, for these kids was that was the body of evidence where no doubt there's robust evidence now that CBD is effective in treating refractory epilepsy or epilepsy that doesn't respond to traditional uh, medications. And oftentimes, these children with the rare seizure disorders have autism as well. And so that's where, yeah, a lot of that research has been done in the past to get us comfortable with the safety profile of CBD. Okay. So when this happened, and you began to, to use CBD with children, how did you get the message out? How are children referred to you? That was that was really organic, in a sense, our community here in Sarnia is pretty tight knit as far as the, the physicians go. It's pretty collegial. So once folks uh, found out about the work in primary care, certainly the work in dementia care, that's when some of those initial referrals started to come in on the PEDS side of things. So I'll get referrals now across from Ontario from pediatric neurologists for the epilepsy side of things. Oftentimes we'll get referrals from uh, pediatric psychiatrists for managing the behaviors and agitation and autism. Um, but it really kind of started organically. And once physicians, once they referred and saw that first couple cases, then certainly became more popular. And then also too, because I do a lot of education and social media content, we started to have people reaching out, hearing other patients' stories, seeing different educational articles posted that the families of these kiddos with autism are obviously very proactive in the education side of things, looking for other alternatives. So we do now have a lot of families reaching out on their own as well. And when they make referrals to you, do you treat the children directly or do you advise their doctors about about the treatment? Uh, Most times I'm treating them directly. So in, in a scenario where a pediatric neurologist refers, I'll get the consult, then I'll I'll see uh, the patient and the family virtually. We'll have a discussion and go over the goals of treatment. Most of the time, um, it's it's usually around agitation, self harming behaviors, anxiety, and sometimes these these kiddos are actually on antipsychotics as well. So we usually have two goals of improving the symptoms and then weaning down the more harmful medication. Well, could you tell us that? Because I know that there are very serious side effects from the antipsychotics. Can you describe those for us, please? 
Well, certainly it's, it's one of those medications where they can have, um, like you said, really serious side effects. And we did need them in the past because there wasn't other alternatives that we were aware of to manage some of these symptoms. But that class of medication is, is falling out of favor because of those side effects, the obesity, the weight gain, the diabetes, diabetes, of course, certain involuntary movements for long-term, long-term use. And even in the, in the senior population, there's a black box warning, increased risk of death with using antipsychotics. So it's, it's really, it's a necessary class for certain disorders, but we're certainly moving away when we're just looking to, to manage behaviors or, or calm agitation. So what is the Canadian Pediatric Association saying about this in the medical association? Are they catching up? Are they catching on or... Unfortunately, no, and it's no nobody's fault. But these organizations and governing bodies move slowly, and that's and that's doing due diligence. You know, there there certainly isn't this robust pile of randomized controlled trials, which we're kind of used to saying is the gold standard. But anytime there's new research in medicine, there's the initial kind of trailblazers who start practicing what they're seeing, what they're reading about on their own. And what they're doing in their own clinical practices. There's a thing called translational lag. And oftentimes it's about 17 years for something to make it from those initial studies to actually widespread adoption. So certainly you're fighting translational lag. You're fighting decades of bias against cannabis. People often just lump it as one and a whole and don't understand what we're using CBD. And yes, there are things to worry about with THC, but in this population, we're really not exposing them to that. So there's a number of nuanced things, which kind of leads to the, the major bodies, maybe not moving as quick as we'd like, but that's, that's understandable. And with more research and more, Case reports, certainly things will will change faster in the future. Well, I would think as well that now that it's legal, its use is legal, that that would open a, a, a lot of doors, no? It's kind of blurred the lines, to be honest. How so? In a sense, legalization blurred the lines in that people can assume if it's legal, what do you need a physician for? Or... It's prevented some physicians to even learning about the endocannabinoid system because they'll say, well, I don't need to prescribe that for my patient. They can just go to the store, which is the worst idea when we're talking about managing medical conditions. The physician should certainly be involved and and not just telling patients to go pick up whatever from wherever. So that's where that's where legalization has kind of blurred those lines. You have like it's really ridiculous when you think about it. Telling, let's say, on my dementia patients, telling the family, just go to the local bud tender and uh, grab a THC oil and start that dementia resident, wean down their antipsychotics on your own. Like it, it's absurd. And if we flip it to our our refractory epilepsy kids or kids with severe autism, same thing. Telling a mom or dad, why don't you go down to the store and pick up. Lord knows what, and and give it to your your five year old who's having these behaviors. So there's a big difference between self medicating. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Or a big difference between someone on a weekend who wants to enjoy cannabis with friends versus someone who's managing a serious medical condition. Okay. 
I'm assuming that the medical associations are are just leaving it alone. They're not they're not forbidding its use. Correct. Correct. There's it's kind of uh, leaving it alone is a, is a way of of saying it. There's certainly there is a, there is kind of a forbidding tendency in it if you are inexperienced in using it. And I I agree with that with the notion of you should have some experience in using this and that patient population as opposed to just any physician prescribing it for for any child with autism. It certainly is a specialized area and I'm with the associations on that side of things. So there is a specific directive that physicians who are prescribing cannabis should should have training and 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 understanding of 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 its yeah, use absolutely and follow your patient through like good continuity of care um, relationships with the referring physicians providing the consult note generally just good good medicine okay well given all of this positive anecdotal evidence and the dangers connected with continued use of antipsychotics i would assume there's some research that's being done, particularly right now and and with children on the spectrum. Is that correct? Correct. So there's been, the bulk of it has came out of Israel and some observational studies. Now they're launching a good randomized control trial on the topic. There's some sites in the US that are starting to do the same thing now that some of the restrictions are coming off, but they're smaller randomized control trials. And what I would like to see with this robust preclinical evidence, the real world evidence that's happening now, and any of the observational data is some money being poured into whether it's private, whether it's government funding, but to research this adequately now. So that's that's what I would like to see is more investment looking at the effects of cannabinoids on this patient population. Looking at it, the long-term effects. Long-term treatment effects. Really, I'm stating we need investment for research dollars into this field because of the positive showings and findings already. It's really important that we we continue to do the work. I'm I'm thinking that uh, traditionally the big pharmaceutical companies are funding big research into drug studies, and I'm curious about whether or not they're taking this up and they're interested. You're great smiling. <laughs> yeah, great question. And it highlights the paradox of cannabinoid medicine in that you'll have people saying, there isn't, where are the large trials? Where are the big, big, large studies? And traditionally we have those because pharmaceutical companies spend the money on them because then they own that intellectual property, that specific molecule that they've patented. In cannabinoid medicine, you can't patent CBD or THC, it's naturally occurring. So there's no incentive for these companies to do that research. Even the cannabinoid medicine companies here in Canada, you really don't see a lot being spent on the research because nobody can patent it. So it's you know, it's this paradox where really I think the only way that research will be done is if it's funded perhaps privately, of course, but maybe federally as well, government-funded research. Well, that makes sense. To go back to the, the specific clinical population, particularly children on the on the autism spectrum, 
Can you describe the kinds of changes that you would see in a child who's been on antipsychotic medication, still not having their symptoms managed, and then beginning the process of <clears throat> weaning them off the antipsychotics and beginning them on the on the CBD? Sure. Yeah. So that's that's pretty typical patient referral. They'll they'll be on a medication like that, but we're still not seeing that clinical effect that we wanted and maybe some unwanted side effects. So be referred usually for anxiety, agitation, self-harming, depending on the age and the size of the patient, it can be aggressive with uh, staff or parents. So that's that's usually the, the picture. And Oftentimes, then we'll use CBD. That's primarily what we're talking about here, non-impairing cannabinoids, CBD, with the goal of reducing the anxiety, reducing the agitation, and hopefully, in some of the aggressive uh, patients, reducing those, those episodes where it gets physical. And, um, and generally, the, the plan is we start them, we titrate the dose up. Everyone's different, so there is an individual dose. So rule of thumb is start low and we increase every three days. We keep the antipsychotic if they're on one on board until we see improvement in the symptoms. And then that's when we'll start weaning down the antipsychotic if there's uh, improvement in the symptoms. So for these children, they're really not having much quality of life. I mean, if these are children who can't really control themselves and who cause fear in the adults around them, it's pretty hard for them to have quality of life day to day. Yep. Yep. And that's, that's one of the indicators we're looking at. And certainly on the caregiver side, quality of life for them as well. So you can imagine if you're in that environment, quality of life all around is tough. So by improving these behaviors, not only are the patient's quality of life improving, but the families as well. I imagine in some cases, it's the difference between being able to maintain a a child or teen in their family home or or not. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes it can be, it can be that severe. And um, one of the kind of the neat little clinical pearls, and it's shown up in some of the research in Israel, we're talking about improving the symptoms, the anxiety, the agitation, but some of these reports um, some of the, the speech measures or speech outcomes have actually improved with some of these patients as well. And I've seen that clinically for a handful of patients too. We're actually forming a sentence or stringing a couple words together. Um, so there are some, some speech improvements in some of these patients, not everyone. And actually, that's a good point too. We're talking about the benefits, and certainly there are. Like I've seen a number of patients improve. But I've also seen patients that don't respond, and some don't respond to the antipsychotics either. So my main message would be it's not necessarily the miracle drug, although it helps a lot of people, but it's a reasonable reasonable option to trial. So where do you see this going in the future? What would you like to have happen, and what do you expect will happen? Well, honestly, what I would like to happen is... Big trials, funded trials, good randomized controlled trials, and based on all of these kind of positive signs, I'm very optimistic that would turn out in a, in a good RCT. So I'd like to see the upfront investment on the research. And then from there, 
I would really like to see more physician adoption for cannabinoid medicine in this patient population because you you do see the benefits and from a side effect profile, a better tolerated medication, if we can get more physicians comfortable with cannabinoids, then again, we can reduce the antipsychotic use in this patient population, which would be a huge win. Well, that makes sense to me. Thank you so much for this conversation, Dr. Pearson. Uh, It's been very interesting and I think very informative for me and for our listeners. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. My pleasure. It was very interesting to me to have that discussion with Dr. Pearson about the use of CBD with children on the spectrum and how it offers an alternative to very unfortunate, heavy-duty antipsychotic medications that the children are now on. As he said, those antipsychotic medications have enormous side effects, including weight gain, diabetes, and also the kind of zombie-like state that they often uh, put children in. So the idea that there is an alternative, that there is something that is working and has future promise is exciting. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Janet Morrison. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 